What do you think the mission of Jesus requires of you? Do you think the mission of Jesus requires anything of you? Uh, Do you think of yourself as involved with and obligated to the mission of Jesus? In a sermon from 1873, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Ouch! How that hurts! But how that helps us to recognize that being called to Jesus means being called into His service. So what does the mission of Jesus require of us? It requires us to be equipped for service and to equip others to Jesus' service. It requires that we actually serve Christ and evangelize the lost. And it requires that we endure scorn and speak of Christ in the hopes that His good news is spread for the glory of His name. That's what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 24 and steady through chapter 19, verse 10. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find the passage beginning on page 927. Now the book of Acts, it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. And the goal of this book is to see the message of Jesus, the message of salvation, extend to the ends of the earth. In our last study in the book of Acts, we saw the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey and really the beginning of his third And this morning, Lord willing, we'll see other missionaries and evangelists raised up and sent out, as well as the continuation of Paul's third missionary journey. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24 and stretching through chapter 19, verse 10, it teaches us that the mission of Jesus requires us to equip saints, to evangelize sinners, and endure scorn so that the good news spreads. Let me say that again, because it's the point of the passage and it's going to be the point of this sermon. The mission of Jesus requires us to equip saints to evangelize sinners and to endure scorn so that his message spreads. Here's how we see that unfold in our passage. In Acts chapter 18 verses 24 to 28, we see Aquila and Priscilla equip Apollos for faithful ministry among God's people. Then in Acts chapter 19 verses 1 to 7, we see the Apostle Paul evangelize some of John the Baptist's disciples, for they had not yet become disciples of the Lord Jesus, and therefore recipients of the Holy Spirit. And then, in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, we see the Apostle Paul endure scorn for preaching the Savior. The Gospels pushed out of the synagogue in Ephesus, only to be proclaimed to all the residents of Asia. So if you're taking notes, those three headings equip evangelize and endure, they're going to form the outline of the rest of this sermon. And Lord willing, there's an insert there in the bulletin provided for you with a little more detail that will hopefully help you to follow along as we work our way through God's Word. Let's begin now and begin our study of God's Word by reading the first verses of our text. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Follow along, and as I read, see if you can see for yourself how these verses announce the need to equip saints. Acts chapter 18 beginning there in verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and he wrote to the disciples to welcome them. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Well, in these verses, we meet a man named Apollos who has great potential for gospel ministry. Aquila and Priscilla, who had actually been missionary companions of the Apostle Paul, knew that gospel work took not only men of faith, but men who would be faithful. And that's what they see in Apollos. They identify a man of faith and they instruct him so that he can more faithfully carry on the mission of Jesus. In verses 24 and 25, we're told of Apollos' past his potential, and his present. We're told a few things about Apollos' past there. You see them? We see his background. He was Jewish. He was from Alexandria. And no, that is not the city next to Arlington. That is Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, So he's from Alexandria. We're also told about his potential. You see in verse 24, we learn that he was eloquent. uh, Apollos, he, he knew how to turn a phrase. But more importantly, the idea there is that he was convincing and he was cultured. He was a learned man whose logic was sound. And in that same verse, we are also told that he was competent in the scriptures. And Luke's not telling us, oh, he's he's so-so, right, in his teaching of scripture. He's just all right. No, no, no. Luke is telling us he's he's well-versed in the scriptures. Uh, He he knew them. He could recall them in the midst of debate and discussion. Some translations even say that he was mighty in the scriptures. This is what every Christian, by God's grace, should long and labor to be. Long for and labor to be. Be mighty in the scriptures. We also learn, I think about Apollos, that he was converted. Now, I admit I'm inferring a little bit from the text here, but given that he was instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, and teaching accurately the things of Jesus, things concerning Jesus, in the synagogue, it seems most likely that Apollos was converted. Notice, notice in verse 25 that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, in, in the book of, uh, of Acts, Luke almost always uses that phrase, Lord, to refer to the Lord Jesus. So Apollos was instructed in and knew the way of the Lord Jesus. What is more, he seemed to be fervent in spirit about the way of Jesus. That phrase, fervent in spirit, has only one other reference in the New Testament. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, where Paul tells Christians, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. That seems to be a fitting description of what we see of Apollos here. He is not slothful in zeal. He's busy and bubbling over in his teaching. He's fervent in spirit, and he's serving the Lord Jesus. Though in verse 25, the uh, translators of ESV, you notice that they have like a, a lowercase s on spirit. Scholars recognize that it's also possible uh, that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, there might even be a little footnote in your Bible right there next to that word spirit that indicates that it can also be translated Holy Spirit. Um, the description of Apollos there as fervent in spirit It's quickly followed by that description that he's teaching things accurately concerning Jesus. In the book of Acts, there are no less than ten references to the Holy Spirit accompanying a believer's speech. In one way or another, those speeches are connected to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So, what would constitute the the substance of Apollos' accurate teaching concerning Jesus? Would he point to Jesus' lineage as one from being from the line of David, the king? Uh, would he teach that Jesus is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world? That he would have certainly heard from John the Baptist 
or his disciples, would Apollos teach about Jesus' resurrection from the dead? In other words, would he teach about Jesus' person and work, his life and death and resurrection for sinners as the fulfillment of the scriptures? These must be the things that he was accurately teaching about. And Apollos seems to be doing this teaching in the synagogue, there as verse 26 suggests. Frankly, the only people that we find doing that kind of thing, teaching about Jesus in the synagogue, in the book of Acts, are Christians. In the end of verse 25, though, we get something of a surprise concerning Apollos, don't we? Given his past, given his potential, and his present activity, it's surprising to be told that his knowledge concerning the way of God is incomplete or partial. Specifically, we're told that he knew only the baptism of John. Now, there are endless amount of takes on this phrase uh, in the commentaries. And I'm just going to give you my bottom line for now, for what I can tell. What I think Luke is trying to communicate here is that Apollos had only undergone the baptism of John. In other words, he hadn't undergone baptism in the name of Jesus. And it seems like what Aquila and Priscilla need to instruct him on is that new converts need to identify with Jesus in baptism. So uh, Dr. Jim Hamilton, he put it like this. Apollos has been taught about Jesus, knows him as the Messiah, and could show his identity based on Scripture, but his knowledge does not include Christian baptism. In other words, it, it's, it seems like Apollos understood, believed, and proclaimed Jesus, the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but that in his teaching, he failed to connect those events to Christian baptism. Christian baptism, if you think about it, it portrays the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and our share in Jesus' work. So if Apollos is going to be going around to be a Christian missionary who goes about baptizing believers in Jesus, then he needs to teach them not only of the saving significance of Jesus' work for them personally, but also that baptism signifies Jesus' saving work publicly. So if you've seen us perform a baptism here at ABC, or we will in the weeks ahead, Lord willing, then you've seen me not only introduce a baptismal candidate, but you've heard me explain the significance of Christian baptism conceptually. So when I do, I'll, I'll usually say something like, in the New Testament, baptism is how one publicly expresses that they have repented toward God and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It is a visible proclamation of the gospel. A person identifies with Jesus by being symbolically buried in the likeness of his death and by being symbolically raised in the likeness of of his resurrection. And this is likely at least something of what Apollos, sorry, what Apollos was being instructed on by Priscilla and Aquila. And in fact, even as they address these things, it's likely that they went further in expressing and teaching the foundations of the Christian faith to Apollos. Now, maybe you're not persuaded by this take on Apollos, what's going on with him. But I'm pretty sure that we can all agree that when Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos teach, they knew he needed to be helped along. And that is the main idea, really, of this whole section. You see there in verse 26, it tells us that Aquila and Priscilla heard him and helped him. Every young preacher needs help. Indeed, every preacher, including myself, can use help. I've been preaching for nearly 13 years, but I continually need help in understanding the way of God. And Aquila and Priscilla, as verse 26 says there, they helped Apollos understand the way of God more accurately. This has to do, I think, first with helping Apollos connect the work of Jesus to baptism in his teaching. But given the phrase way of God and the, the broad nature of that phrase, they would have certainly stretched into other areas of the Christian faith too. Young preachers need sharpening and further equipping. So, did you notice how Aquila and Priscilla 
helped Apollos. Did you notice where they helped Apollos? They did so privately, didn't they? And there's some application here for us, I think. When you come across a zealous young believer in Jesus, you should help him or her along in faith. And you should do so privately. Uh, you don't want to correct, certainly a young man who may be an aspiring preacher, you don't want to correct him publicly. The last thing you want to do with a fervent young believer is douse the fire with water. So especially if you notice a young man who might be capable of being a missionary, a pastor, or an elder someday, you should take it upon yourself to lovingly and privately help him along in the Lord. And sisters, I just want to point you to this passage as well. Luke is clear here that Priscilla was involved in this private instruction and correction. Yes, sisters, you can correct your brothers in the Lord. I have personally experienced that from sisters in this congregation. It's been a blessing to me. I trust that it's not only made me a better pastor, but a better Christian. And you have helped uh, to keep me from inflicting my errors uh, further upon the congregation. So you have loved me, you've loved Jesus, and you've loved Jesus' people. So sisters, you can certainly be involved with this. And I would encourage you to do so. Notice that Aquila and Priscilla, they're being hospitable and helpful. This is how we always see, always see them in the New Testament. And recognize, in the midst of this hospitality, it's, it's not just for the purpose of fellowship, but also formation. You understand that here? So what's happening when they invite Apollos over to their home is not only relating to him, developing this relationship and friendship with their brother and the Lord, but they are also forming him. So in our own hospitality, when we have believers, brothers and sisters, over to our homes, we want to be opening our Bibles, having intentional spiritual conversation with one another, and talking about the things of the Lord. We want to build up our relationships with one another, yes, so we should have fun in our hospitality. And we should also be forming one another in the things of the Lord, as we talk about His Word. Well, after Aquila and Priscilla privately help Apollos, his desire to see the name of the Lord Jesus proclaimed grows and continues. He is committed to making Jesus known. And the brothers of the church in Ephesus, you see there, they, they commend Apollos to the saints in Achaia. Apollos spends most of his time in, in Corinth. It's in the region of Achaia. And this commendation of Apollos is a breath of fresh air, isn't it? Here Christians are saying to a group of believers, this brother we're sending to you, he's not actually a competitor in the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he's a companion. He's a co-laborer. You can trust him, welcome him, and actually deploy him for the sake of making Jesus known in your town. And what's striking is how Luke describes Apollos' activity once he gets there. You see, having been personally helped in private, Apollos turns around and he helps the saints in public. He helps those who by God's grace had believed. It's only by God's grace that anyone believes. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 21, we're told that the hand of the Lord was upon the Gentiles and a great number believed. We're saved by grace through faith, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Still, did you notice how it was that Apollos helped those who through grace had believed? He did it by a public refutation of the Jews. And that word refute there, it means actually to overwhelm. So Apollos had such a firm grasp on the Old Testament scriptures and of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, no, no doubt made more firm by Priscilla and Aquila, that he overwhelmed all of the arguments of the Jews in Achaia. It's striking, isn't it, that from Luke's vantage point, apologetics, defending 
the truth of Christ, first and foremost, actually helps Christians. Did you, did you get that from the text? They're helped first. Yes, the Lord may be pleased to save unbelievers through gospel apologetics, but at least with respect to what's happening in Achaia, those who are helped the most are Christians. It's helpful to our faith for brothers and sisters to speak publicly for Christ. Our unbelieving friends can raise disturbing questions, challenging questions, but there are answers. And we should give thanks to God that he equips men and women to refute those who oppose the message of Christ. It's a help to our faith to have overwhelming answers to disturbing questions. And clearly, Aquila and Priscilla have equipped Apollos for this. No doubt, in part from their own equipping, from the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul refuted the Jews in their hearing as well. So there's a, a chain of kind of helping one another along in the Lord. Paul helps uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila help Apollos. And so it goes on. And we ought to be engaged in that activity of helping others along. The mission of Jesus, it requires us not only to equip saints insofar as we're able, but it also requires us to evangelize sinners. And so in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, the Apostle Paul, he comes back into view where he encounters disciples of John the Baptist. Unlike Apollos, these disciples did not know Jesus. Unlike Apollos, they had not been instructed in the way of the Lord Jesus. They didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was. And here we see Paul educate and evangelize these disciples of John. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John, bapti John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Well, in these verses, we see Paul meet, investigate the faith, and then evangelize these disciples of John the Baptist. Once they came to faith, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Let's take a closer look at these verses now. Notice that we, we meet these disciples. Paul, he's been traveling on his third missionary journey. He comes to Ephesus. Uh, he and Apollos seems, seem to kind of pass by one another. And Ephesus, as you'll see kind of at the end of our passage, it's one of the places that Paul spends most of his time in. Um, it's the kind of, yeah, place where he kind of hunkers down and actually sends many people out. Um, on the last leg, if you think back to his second missionary journey, on the last leg of his second missionary journey, uh, he promised the church in Ephesus that he would return to them if the Lord willed. So with verse 1, what we see here clearly, it seems like the Lord was willing to return him to Ephesus and to, to minister among them. Paul spends a, a great deal of time here in Ephesus, as I said. It's one of his longest stops, actually. So we're told that while in Ephesus, he finds some disciples. And that's a really strange characterization of these disciples that, that Paul meets. And, and we soon learn why this is a strange 
characterization. They're not really disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of John the Baptist. And the truth is, is that when Paul actually investigates their belief, we learn that they're, they're actually pretty bad disciples of John the Baptist. So you see there in verses 2 and 3, Paul, he asks a series of questions to discern where they are with respect to Jesus. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now carefully note there Paul's assumption. He is assuming that they had believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. A believer receives the Holy Spirit in connection with their conversion to Christ. So we thought about that last week when we unpacked the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, gives us the gift of faith in the Lord Jesus, and comes to live within us. But, but take a look at their answer there at the end of verse 2. Do you see it? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And you can almost hear like the record scratch, right? When Paul, Wait, what? Uh, th- th- until what then were you baptized, guys? And they, they tell him, into John's baptism. So they, so they reveal that they were disciples of John, and bad disciples of John. It's almost as if they haven't actually listened to anything that John has said in the course of his preaching, right? Because John explicitly preached on the Holy Spirit. So we've got to remember that when John was preaching uh, in the days preparing the way for the Lord Jesus, thousands of people were coming to John. Uh, In Mark's gospel, we're told that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan. Some might have been doing this just because it was what everyone else is doing. And that's a bad reason to be baptized. And maybe these guys were uh, among that group. That's actually what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They were coming to John to be baptized kind of with everybody else. And John actually publicly rebuked them. So maybe these guys were kind of a part of that group. Just going to get baptized by John because everyone else was. Maybe they weren't really paying attention to what John was teaching. Because I said, John, he was explicit uh, in his preaching about the Holy Spirit. Listen to what John explicitly proclaimed in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. John said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. How can they not have heard that there is a Holy Spirit? Indeed, they're Jews. They should know the existence of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament. How could they not have heard this when this is one of the central pillars of John's preaching? And now we understand why Paul in verse 4 takes them back to school, really to educate them on John the Baptist's preaching and his practice of baptism. Paul teaches these men that John's ministry was all preparatory. It was pointing toward the Savior, the Messiah, who would come after him. And John was pleading with the people to repent of their sins and to believe in that coming one. John was pleading with them. In other words, John's ministry was always pointing away from himself and to the Messiah who would come and pour out his Holy Spirit. And the end of verse 4, it becomes clear that Paul is not really educating, but that he is also evangelizing. Because he tells them the name of the very one who comes after John. That is Jesus. Paul tells them that the one John proclaimed has come. And it's upon hearing this good news of Jesus that they were converted They believed and were baptized in Jesus' name. That's why people are baptized in the New Testament, because they believe in Jesus. And as a side, this is probably the reason why Apollos himself was not baptized. If you look back up to that section on Apollos, you'll see that he wasn't baptized following his conversation with Priscilla and Aquila. And that's probably because Apollos believed 
in John's preaching. More importantly, he believed in Jesus, as was evidenced by his knowing the way of Jesus and being fervent in spirit. Again, probably the Holy Spirit. Whereas these guys had no idea who the Spirit was. What is more, their baptism in Jesus' name does not mean that they were um, not baptized into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. You'll remember that Jesus, during his great commission, he taught his disciples that that's how they're to practice baptism. You're, you're to baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What, what is probably going on here, they probably were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what Luke is doing for us in kind of narrative fashion is underscoring for us that they actually weren't believers in Jesus. They weren't savingly united to the Lord Jesus. And so they were baptized in Jesus' name. And then in verse 6, we can also see what happened in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. What happened in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And what happened in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10 is now happening for these men in Ephesus. Paul, he lays his hands on these men and they receive the miraculous works of the Spirit. If you were to go back and read through the book of Acts, then you would see that the miraculous outpourings of the Spirit always have an apostle of Jesus Christ associated with them. There will not be another Pentecost today. A supernatural outpouring of the Spirit where the gifts of tongues and prophecies are given like this. Because the Lord Jesus has called His apostles home to glory. Their hands are in heaven. But why did these miraculous works of the Spirit take place here? Speaking in tongues, that is, in foreign languages. And prophesying, receiving and speaking a direct revelation from God. Why did these miraculous works turn up in Ephesus? Well, remember that this outpouring of the Spirit is accompanying the conversion of these disciples. It's co-occurring with their conversion. Pentecost... The outpouring of the Spirit signified that Jesus, he had been enthroned in heaven. And that he had poured out his Spirit, actually just like John the Baptist proclaimed. And then thousands in Jerusalem were converted. It signified an important event in the course of redemptive history. It signified that Jesus is ruling and reigning. And that the earth is receiving her King. And her King is pouring out his Spirit. And so here, these men are experiencing the, the testimony that Jesus is reigning. That he is ruling. And here uh, is a small group of Jews. They'd not heard the Messiah had come and sent his spirit. And so Jesus, in love and mercy, pours out his spirit. And they're brought up to date, really, with where things are at in redemptive history. Some Christians, especially our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, talk about a two-stage reception of the Holy Spirit. And they use this text as a proof of that. So they say the believers are regenerated by the spirit at stage one. And then sometime after their regeneration, they are baptized with the Spirit and begin doing things like this. Speaking in tongues and prophesying. That's stage two. Sadly, sometimes such teaching, I think, has led Christians to doubt their conversion and their salvation. Because they've never spoken in tongues or ever prophesied. Uh, I, I'm a Christian who's never spoken in tongues. I've never had miraculous fluency in a foreign language. And that, by the way, is what the Bible means when it refers to tongues. It means to speak in human foreign languages. I've also never received a personal and private direct revelation from God where what I speak is therefore binding upon the church in every age. And that's also what prophecy in the Bible means. It's a direct revelation from God, given from God for His people. It's meant to be believed and obeyed by all of His people. If it is revelation from God, then it's on par with Scripture. And that's for all of God's people for all time. But I personally have never had that. And I'm not sad about that. 
I trust the Lord in His providence and what He's doing in this world. And if you're like me and you've never had these miraculous experiences, then you should not doubt your salvation. Christian, you should not doubt your salvation. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, then you've been filled with the Spirit. You've received the down payment on your inheritance to glory. Brothers and sisters, as we thought about last week, the Spirit lives in you. He's bearing fruit in you and bringing you to glory, bringing glory to Jesus and bringing you to glory with Jesus. So I don't think this text teaches a two-stage reception of the Spirit. I don't think any text actually does. What this text teaches is that the coming of the Spirit in His miraculous power signals that the gospel had been really and truly received and believed by these men in Ephesus. And I also don't think that reference there in verse 7, Luke's reference, that there were about 12 men in all. Do you see that there? I don't think that's a throwaway reference. Many uh, commentators will say this has no real significance at all, but I don't think that's true. Uh, to me, that seems actually to harken back to Pentecost. Uh, thinking about the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles there at Pentecost. And after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there in Pentecost, uh, many people came to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Ephesus will become an outpost of the gospel to all the residents of Asia, as the end of our text says. So, just as the disciples were sent out from Jerusalem after Pentecost, and more and more people believed, so believers in Jesus were about to carry the message of Christ all throughout Asia from Ephesus. Now, before we press on from these verses, we should recognize there's some application here for us, even in this sometimes strange and confusing text. Uh, here's one, as harsh as it may sound, the truth is, is that everyone who claims to be a disciple may not actually be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Paul, he investigated the faith of these men, didn't he? He, he didn't investigate their faith in order to reject them, but in order to receive them and to see them received into the kingdom of God. I, imagine if Paul simply took these men at, at their word. He said, okay, guys, your disciples, great, have a great day, and moved on and on his way. Well, these men would have been left without the message of Jesus, and they would have perished and gone to hell. It is not wrong for us to ask someone if they're a believer in Jesus. There's no sin in that. So at the door, after the service, I, I will very often ask to somebody, do you consider yourself to be a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if they say yes, I will often follow up and ask, so what is the good news of Jesus Christ? What's the, what's the message of Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? That is a kind question. That's not an unkind question. And, and maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're actually just hoping that someone will ask you that question, because you can say, I don't know. Would you just tell me about that? I, I want to know what it means to follow and believe in Jesus. And for a Christian who's here this morning, if somebody asks you that question, I, I don't think you should feel offended or be defensive in being asked that question. No, you should be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have within 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 15. Indeed, if you personally start to ask that question of other people and they have no idea who Jesus is, uh, then you have a wonderful opportunity to share Christ with them. And as strange as it may seem, we even ask people who are coming into membership here in our church about these things. We ask because we want to make sure that you know Jesus, who he is. We, we love you and we want to see you saved if you don't know him. Um, if you are, don't already know the saving power of Jesus. We ask because we want to make sure that you are actually equipped to tell others the good news about Jesus. This is uh, the work that all disciples of Jesus are to be doing. And we want to make sure that you're ready to be a service and servant 
to Jesus in the task of making him known. And if you're a Christian, another reason that we want to ask, because we want to rejoice with you in Jesus' saving power. We need to be reminded day after day of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So it's good and right for us as Christians to talk about the gospel, to talk about what we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus, it requires us to equip saints, to evangelize sinners, and to endure scorn so that the good news of Jesus might spread. Let's turn then and consider our third and final point, endure. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the, of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, in these verses, we see Paul evangelize Jews in the synagogue. We see him face stubborn rejection, and we see him continue to spread the word. You see there, as verse 9 opens up, Paul, he returns to his old familiar stomping grounds, the synagogue. Paul always goes to a synagogue whenever he turns up to town. He had actually been to this synagogue before, as I mentioned earlier. If you look back over at Acts chapter 18, verse 19, we're told that Paul ministered in the synagogue when he was last in Ephesus. And Luke informs us of several aspects of Paul's synagogue evangelism. He spoke boldly. His strategy was to use reason and persuasion. And the substance of his speech was the kingdom of God. With respect to that speech, Paul spoke freely. He spoke without fear. That's what it means to speak boldly. Think about your, your own speech for a minute when you talk about Jesus. Do you speak boldly? Is this how you speak when you speak about the Lord Jesus Christ? How can Paul speak so boldly? How can we? Well, Paul, he was convinced of his commission. When you know deep down that this is something you should be doing, something you're called by God to do, that gives you a certain boldness, doesn't it? Paul's also convinced that God was with him. If God is for us, then who could be against us? Paul was convinced that he had something to say that others needed to hear. He was convinced of the realities of hell and the real offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Beloved, Jesus has commissioned you, and he has not revoked that commission. When he called you, he called you to go and tell others about it. Beloved, Jesus has commissioned you. Beloved, Jesus is with you. He has not left you or forsaken you. That's what he promised there in that great commission. I will never leave you or forsake you. And beloved, Jesus has given you something to say that others need to hear. And his gospel will never lose its power. Beloved, Jesus, he has convinced you of the realities of hell and of the hope of heaven. So much so that you have cast your whole eternal future upon him. Jesus' offer of salvation is real and as available as the day you first believe. So, beloved, speak boldly like Paul. Speak boldly and adopt Paul's strategy. You see what he does here? Halfway through verse 8, we're told that Paul reasoned and sought to persuade them. That word reason, it actually means to prove by argument. So, to put forth evidence concerning a truth. Paul was always pulling out the Old Testament scrolls, pointing to passages 
and proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let us always be pulling out our Bibles, opening them up with our friends and family members, and showing Christ from the Scriptures. Uh, If you gather with the men here on Wednesday mornings at 6.30 for coffee and Bible reading, you know that this is what we do. One of the things we always try to do toward the end of our time together is to think about how we can share Christ from this passage of Scripture. Uh, We certainly attempt to do it often on Wednesday nights as well. Let me just encourage you that when you are reading your Bible, perhaps in your own personal quiet time, uh, think evangelistically about it. How would you talk about an unbeliever, how would you talk about Jesus with an unbeliever from this passage? Make it an application question as part of your quiet time or your small group. Ask yourself, how can I show something of Christ from this passage? His, His glory, His love, His truth. And how can I invite others to trust Jesus? And then, brothers and sisters, pray. Pray that the Lord Jesus would give you opportunities to speak of Christ from the Scriptures with an unbelieving friend. Like Paul, try to persuade your unbelieving friends that Jesus is the Savior that they want, that all their desires that they're experiencing in this life, that only Jesus can satisfy. He's actually the Savior that you really want and are looking for and longing for. And He's the Savior you need. And so offer to Him. Offer them Christ. That's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to convince those in his hearing to trust Jesus and follow Jesus. He is pleading. And if we love our unbelieving friends and family, we will plead with them too. We'll plead with them that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the substance of Paul's speech. We will plead with him to believe that the king has come and that he is coming again. That's what Paul is doing with those in the synagogue. They were waiting for God's Messiah, God's anointed king, and Paul was telling them that the king had come and that they should come into his kingdom under his rule by repentance and faith. Sadly, we see there in verse 9 that we're told that in time they rejected Paul's message. They They were stubborn, just like the ancient people of Israel. That's why we read from Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 14, earlier in the service. We were told that the people of Israel were a stiff necked people, even in the face of God's grace to them, in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and giving them a law with a command to worship and serve Him only, they were stubborn and stiff-necked. Why were those in the synagogue stubborn? Ultimately, you see there, it's because they were unbelieving. Unbelief is always the root of stubborn opposition to the good news of Jesus. Again, what makes this so sad is that when Paul was last in Ephesus, back in chapter 18, verse 20, he was actually asked to stay longer and minister there. And now things have changed. He's being encouraged to leave and to go. And it appears they had enough. They started speaking evil of the way of Jesus. That is, they started speaking evil about Christians and their message publicly. They wanted to scorn them and shame them and stop them from speaking. Friend... If you're here today and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to abandon stubbornness and unbelief. Don't commit the same sins as those in that synagogue there in Ephesus. I want to invite you to come to Jesus and follow Him today. For the truth is that we've all been made in God's image. We've been made to worship Him, to love Him, to honor Him, to know Him, to serve Him. And yet, we have all sinned against God. We've rebelled against the eternal God. We've rejected Him as our Lord, our ruler, our master, our director. We've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. The the wages of sin, the, the payment and punishment that is due to sin, to our working in sin, 
is death. Eternal death. That's what we deserve for our sin against the eternal God. But the good news of the Bible is that in love, God has he sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be King and Savior of the world. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross, bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God the Father raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Jesus, after that, He ascended into heaven, thus revealing that He is God's Savior and King. And friend, if you're here today, don't be like those in that synagogue. Don't be stubborn. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Don't scorn, but submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is ready and willing to receive you into His kingdom. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus, to be loved by Him, and to love Him in return, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your Christian friend that you perhaps came here with today. Tell them that you want to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important that we'd love to talk to you about today than this good news about Jesus. And Christian, Christian, what we see unfolding here in the synagogue, we also need to apply to our hearts and take to heart with respect to our own evangelism. Yes, we may face stubborn rejection of Jesus, but we need to make sure that it is actually stubborn rejection of Jesus. Did you notice that Paul ministered in the synagogue for three months. You see that there in verse 8? He, he didn't give up right away. And we shouldn't either. Uh, just because you've been kind of rebuffed by a friend or family member doesn't mean you shouldn't return to the conversation as though it's kind of off limits forever now. No, sometimes we need to patiently return to the conversation to see actually maybe there is an openness to Jesus. We should also be careful not to take unbelief as a sign of personal rejection. Ultimately, unbelief is a rejection of Jesus. Someone can reject the gospel message and the gospel offer, and you can continue to love them, and they can continue to love you. Your relationship is not necessarily over with that person because they reject Jesus. Try not to take it personally, but do pray for them. Still, we, we need to recognize that we may well be slandered because we identify with and proclaim Jesus and His truth. This happened to Christians in the past, and it happens in the present. So in, in the early church, just a couple of examples of what happened in the early church. In the early church, Christians actually referred to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord because they were brought into God's family by salvation. And in time, they were actually accused of incest because they would only marry a brother or sister. So the outsiders hearing these words like, Brother John is marrying Brother Jane, that's incest. So to the outsiders, they were accused of committing incest. Similarly, uh, Christians actually were also accused of committing cannibalism uh, because when they spoke about communion in the Lord Jesus Christ, right, eating his flesh, eat, eating the body and drinking the blood of the Lord Jesus, uh, Christians faced the, the, the accusation of cannibalism. So Christians have long faced scorn. Uh, the way of Jesus has long been spoken evil of. And the same is true today. Sometimes Christians are publicly slandered as hateful, bigoted, narrow, outdated on the wrong side of history and unloving because we stand with the Bible on issues like sexuality and marriage. The Bible teaches that God's design for sexual expression is to take place within the covenant of marriage and that marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman. And sometimes Christians are slandered for siding with God on those issues. 
Sometimes Christians are slandered, uh, publicly slandered, as unscientific or uneducated because we believe that the work of creation is God's making all things from nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all of that very good. Sometimes Christians are slandered for being unscientific and uneducated. Sometimes Christians are slandered as oppressive and patriarchal because we believe what the Bible says about husbands and wives. That a husband is the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And brothers and sisters, if we face such slander, if you face such slander, let me encourage you to remember the words of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, where, where Peter writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Brothers and sisters, if you are insulted, rejoice. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And as we conclude, I want you to notice what Paul does after facing scorn. Once it's clear that the gospel is being stubbornly rejected. Paul, he relocates the disciples of Jesus to the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, now, um, this doesn't mean that Paul gave up on the Jews in Ephesus. Uh, he probably kept praying for them. And as he came across their path, I expect that he kept talking to them about the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul, as we know from the book of Romans, was desperate to see his Jewish brethren saved and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, Paul wisely relocated the disciples of Jesus to the hall of Tyrannus. Now this was likely a school of some kind, or at least a, a lecture hall owned by this person by the name of Tyrannus. Uh, the name's a little strange because uh, Tyrannus means tyrant, right? So imagine sending your kids to the tyrant school, uh, or, or, or kids, imagine going there. Um, anyway, what, what we see from Paul is that he actually kept reasoning daily. Uh, he endured scorn, and he kept right on teaching. We need that kind of perseverance, don't we? Uh, we, we need the kind of faith which recognizes that though the message of Jesus may be rejected in one place, it might be received in another, welcomed in another. After all, we're told in verse 10 that Paul was able to keep this up for two years. And that Ephesus, it became a base camp for sending the gospel out to all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks. Anyone was welcome to hear the good news of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that uh, Christians in that region uh, did not... Uh, hesitate to share the good news of Jesus with anyone. Uh, they, they certainly probably face their fears from time to time. But they made Christ known to everyone from, from every stripe, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and ethnic background. And we need the faith to believe that simply because the gospel, and maybe sometimes we, are pushed out of one place, doesn't mean that we won't be welcomed in another. Hostility sometimes leads to hospitality. Um, like Ephesus, we, we might be welcomed uh, in another region, right? Uh, the gospel was kind of pushed out of Ephesus a little bit, but it was received in all of Asia. So, beloved, as we conclude, ask yourself, will, will you be equipped and will you equip others for the mission of Jesus? Will you evangelize the lost? Will you endure scorn to see the message of Jesus spread? Will we be missionaries or will we be imposters?
Let's pray that God would give us the grace to be missionaries, to make Christ known. Let's pray now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.